Walk slowly to the cross, friends. Walk slowly. Hear the sounds, the groans, trudging feet, the muddled sobs, whips cracking the air and cutting skin. Walk slowly to the cross, friends. Walk slowly. Could that be a whiff of the last remnants of oil from a broken alabaster jar? Smell the perspiration mingled with the aroma of street animals, cooking fires and Sabbath foods bubbling in ancient earthenware. Walk slowly to the cross, friends. Walk slowly. See the man. See the crowds. See the individuals. Staring, crying, sneering, cringing, caring, jeering, ignoring. Walk slowly to the cross, friends. Walk slowly. Taste the sweat. Taste the blood. Taste the tears. Taste the fear. Walk slowly to the cross, friends. Walk slowly. We're there now. See the crosses? Perhaps through agonizing, silent tears, we feel the pounding pain. Feel the humiliation, the bewildering loss, the darkest loneliness, the soul-crushing despair. Walk slowly, friends. Sit nearby. Wait, linger. Listen to the distant thunder. Don't rush away. Don't look away. Don't miss this. Let Good Friday mean something. The resurrection is coming, but don't miss this. It's life poured out. Liquid redemption for you. Foreshadowing your future need when you'll walk slowly, full of sin, without hope, without peace, without grace, without love, without mercy, without, without. He who was without sin took ours to his grave. And soon we'll discover that the name Emmanuel, God with us, has taken on fresh meaning. But not yet. For now, it's enough to remember love poured out. Our great Father in heaven, we come into your presence as a family, as a body tonight, to once again remember the great sacrifice of your Son, Jesus, our Savior, the one who took away our sins. The details of the day are unfathomable. It's one thing to die. It's quite another to be tortured to the very last moment of life. And we know, God, that on that day, your Son showed us what it means to make our bodies a grave for hate. And so tonight, we reflect on his sacrifice. And as we do, We do not merely hope to follow his example. No. We hope to be the hands and feet 
the body of Christ in this world today. Sacrificing, dying if necessary, that others might live. In Jesus' name, amen. Indeed. Who would ever believe it? Who would possibly accept what we've been told? Who has witnessed the awesome power and plan of the eternal in action? Out of emptiness he came, like a tender shoot from a rock-hard ground. He didn't look anything like anything or anyone of consequence. He had no physical beauty to attract our attention. So he was despised and forsaken by men. This man of suffering, grief's patient friend, as if he was a person to avoid, we looked the other way. He was despised, forsaken, and we took no notice of him. Yet it was our suffering he carried, our pain and our distress, our Sick to the soulness. We just figured that God had rejected him, that God was the reason he hurt so badly. But he was hurt because of us. He suffered so. Our wrongdoing wounded and crushed him. He endured the breaking that made us whole. The injuries he suffered became our healing. We all have wandered off like shepherdless sheep. Scattered by our aimless striving and our endless pursuits, the eternal one laid on him, the silent sufferer, the sins of us all. And in the face of such oppression and suffering was silence. Not a word of protest, not a finger raised to stop it. Like a sheep to a shearing, like a lamb to be slaughtered, he went, oh so quietly, oh so willingly. Oppressed and condemned, he was taken away. From this generation, who was there to complain? Who was there to cry foul? He was, after all, cut off from the land of the living, smacked and struck, not on his account, because of how how my people, my people, disregarded the lines between right and wrong. They snuffed out his life. And when he was dead, he was buried with the disgraced in a borrowed space, even though he did no wrong by word or deed. Yet the Eternal One planned to crush him all along, to bring him to grief, this innocent servant of God. When he puts his life in sin's dark place, in the pit of wrongdoing, this servant of God will see his children And have all his days prolonged. For in his servant's hand, the eternal's deepest desire is to come and pass and flourish. As a result of the trials and troubles that wreck wreck his soul, God's servant will see light and be content. Because he knows, really understands what it's about. As God says, my just servant will justify countless others by taking on their punishment and bearing it away. Because he exposed his very self, laid bare his soul to the vicious grasping of death, and was counted among the worst. I count him among the best. I will allot this one, my servant, a share in all that is of any value, because he took on himself the sin of many, and acted on behalf of those who broke my law. Isaiah refers to Jesus as the suffering servant. In your mind right now, walk slowly toward the cross. Go ahead. Stand at the foot of the cross 
and see what you see. To what image does God draw you? What experience of the pain of Christ? Maybe it's the nail. The opened flesh from the whips. The thorn crushed into his forehead. The blood. Some dripping and some dried. Get a little closer. Look again. Don't turn your eye away. Look again. This was no mistake. This was no accident. This wasn't a plan gone wrong. He did this for you. He loves you. He wanted to serve you in the ultimate way. He loved talking about serving. And He loved giving us examples of serving. Like the night before His crucifixion when He was betrayed. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for Him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord... Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that's why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do this as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. After three years of self-giving love, one symbolic demonstration of compassion remained before Jesus would offer himself completely on behalf of creation. Jesus knew that all authority had been given to him by his Father, His disciples also knew that Jesus possessed divine authority because he had commanded the elements, diseases, and evil spirits on so many previous occasions. Now at the high point of the disciples' confidence in the authority of Jesus, he does a very peculiar thing. He begins one at a time to wash their feet. 
In doing so, Jesus reverses every assumption that might have been held about the rights and privileges of power as well as the very nature of love. Do you understand what I have done for you? This is the question Jesus puts to his beleaguered disciples after washing their feet. That's that same question, do you understand what I have done for you, has not stopped echoing through the hearts of men and women since Jesus first asked it. Do we understand? Have we caught the smallest glimpse of what it means for the Christ of creation to wash the feet of common people? People like ourselves? Has the magnitude of his compassion penetrated our composure Has his love broken the hard shell of our guilty conscience? This story is one of those rare occasions in which Jesus chooses to explain the mystery created by his own behavior. After he makes it clear that, in fact, the disciples do not realize what he has done, he tells them, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. The explanation reveals at least two things about the nature of God's love. First, God's love is is preceded by action. As Bernard of Clairvaux once said, we must remember that love reveals itself not by words or phrases, but by action and experience. Second, authority and power do not exclude us from serving one another, but rather employ us to serve others. How is it that two simple objects, a bowl of water and a towel, came to symbolize the magnitude of Christ's love? Because in them we see Christ reaching for instruments of service rather than instruments of power. But while the miracles demonstrated His love, They were open to misinterpretation as mere acts of power. There is no misunderstanding this final act, however. It is a demonstration of sheer humility. When Jesus, in all His authority, serves His disciples by washing their feet, the magnitude of His love is realized through His openness Through his openness in service toward us, we know the love of God. For us, the imperative to serve one another and live outwardly has a foundation far deeper than mere social virtue. It is an invitation to be who we were created to be, made in the image of the triune God. As the Father, Son, and Spirit coexist in a dance of mutual indwelling, so the image of God is fulfilled in our lives when we openly and outwardly participate in the life around us with acts of love. But our journey is not over. We have not yet followed Christ to the end. When Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? It is the command which follows Peter's confession that is so intriguing. Feed my sheep, Jesus says. It's as if Jesus is saying to Peter, I've shown you what it means to love. Now be true to the love you've confessed and do as I have. After telling Peter to care for his sheep, Jesus warns him, that his hands will be tied and he'll be taken where he does not want to go, indicating the kind of death Peter would die. It should come as no surprise to us that following Jesus will regularly lead us to places where we would rather not go, to places we've spent our whole lives trying to avoid. This journey unremittingly confronts us with the paradox which lies at the heart of the Christian story. That the cross, while a symbol of life, is first 
and foremost, an instrument of death. Only after the cross served its life-stealing function was it converted into a life-giving symbol. I wonder if you might take the next couple of moments in silence, whether your eyes are closed, staring at a cross or candle, and just pray to God right now, serving others in the body of Christ, praying for those right now who are not experiencing the freedoms that we are when it comes to worship. Might you lift up a prayer right now for the Christians in Egypt who didn't have a Palm Sunday celebration like we did, but instead had a day of horror? Would you lift up the Christians in Syria, in Iraq, in Iran, thinking again of the Christians in Egypt who gladly wear a cross on their wrist, knowing that that mark could lead to their identification as Christians and the end of their lives. Would you serve them right now by offering up a prayer to God on their behalf? I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen. But this is to to fulfill the passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I am telling you this now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. And whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which one of, which one of them it would be. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, Ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, What you are about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give give something to the poor. But as soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, Where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. 
Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Judas and Peter present me with a choice between running away from Jesus in despair or returning to him in hope. Judas betrays Jesus and hanged himself. Peter denied Jesus and returned to him in tears. Sometimes despair seems seems an attractive choice, solving everything in the negative. The voice of despair says, I sin over and over again. After endless promises to myself, and others to do better next time, I find myself back again in the old dark places. Forget about trying to change. I've tried for years. It doesn't work, and it will never work. It's better that I just get out of people's way, be forgotten, no longer around, dead. This strangely attractive voice takes all uncertainties away and puts an end to the struggle. It speaks unambiguously for the darkness and offers a clear-cut negative identity. But Jesus came to open my ears to another voice that says, I am your God. I have molded you with my own hands and I have loved what I have made. I love you with a love that has no limits Because I have loved you as I am loved. Do not run away from me. Come back to me. Not once, not twice, but always again. You are my child. How can you ever doubt that I will embrace you again? Hold you again to my breast. Kiss you. And let my hands run through your hair. I am your God the God of mercy and compassion, the God of pardon and love, the God of tenderness and care. Please do not say that I have given up on you, that I cannot stand you anymore, that there is no way back. It is not true. I so much want to be, I so much want you to be with me. I so much want you to be close to me. I know all your thoughts. I hear all your words, I see all your actions, and I love you because you're beautiful, made in my own image, an expression of my ultimate love. Do not criticize yourself. Do not condemn yourself. Do not reject yourself. Let my love touch the deepest, most hidden corners of your heart and reveal to you your own beauty, a beauty that you have lost sight of, but which will become visible to you again in the light of my mercy. Come, come. Let me wipe your tears and let my mouth come close to your ear and say to you, I love you. I love you. I love you. This is the voice that Jesus wants us to hear. It is the voice that calls us always to return to the one who has created us in love and wants to recreate us in mercy. Peter heard that voice and trusted it. And as he let that voice touch his heart, tears came. Tears of sorrow and tears of joy. Tears of remorse and tears of peace. Tears of repentance and tears of gratitude. It is not easy to let the voice of God's mercy speak to us because it is a voice asking for an always open relationship, one in which sins are acknowledged, forgiveness received, and love renewed. It does not offer us just a fix, but a friendship. 
It does not take away our problems, but it promises not to avoid them. It does not tell us where it all will end, but it assures us that we will never, ever, ever be alone. A true relationship is hard work because loving is hard work with many tears and many smiles. But it is God's work and worth every part of it. Oh Lord, my Lord, help me to listen to your voice and to choose your mercy. It is possible as we reflect on the torment of the crucifixion and we draw the realization that our sins nailed Jesus there, that we get so overwhelmed by our guilt that we forget that Jesus chose to be there. Because he knew there was no other way for our guilt to be removed. There is no further payment you can make for your sin. Your extreme sorrow tonight does not pay for your sin. Your remorse does not pay for your sin. The blood of Jesus and his sacrifice pays for our sin. And he certainly calls on us to be sorry for our sin, to confess our sin, to repent of our sin, to desire to walk in a new direction. But don't miss the point tonight. Jesus was on the cross because he chose to be there. The Father wanted him there and he said, I will do your will, Father. And so now we come to the point of the evening where we partake of communion And this is a a potentially a really beautiful time, a special time for all of us. We have places set up around the room allowing you different opportunities. There are two tables in the back with bread and cup there, and you can stand and take communion there. Uh, We also have two tables up front set up with chairs. And it's possible that you with your family or friend, small group, whatever, might want to come and just celebrate communion together. Maybe one in your, in your group would actually lead out and say those words, Jesus gave his body for us, let's eat this bread together. Jesus gave his blood for us, let's drink this cup together. So it's a chance for you to sit for a while and reflect. It's not, hopefully, a moment that you just get up and run away. We've actually, let me check. We said we'd be done at 8. and got 20 minutes. you got time. Time to be quiet. Let me tell you about a couple other opportunities. We set up these two tables. They do not have communion, but they have pieces of paper and a pen. And it is possible that you might want to come and take one of those pieces of paper and, I don't know, Maybe you're moved tonight to just write Jesus a tremendous note of gratitude for what he did for you. Maybe there's a prayer request that lays heavy on your heart. Maybe there's a sin that you're just finally saying, I'm done. Write it on the paper and then you can come over here and we have some of the palm crosses from Sunday and just take that and lay it on the cross. Lay it on the cross and be reminded that Jesus takes on all of our burdens. So that opportunity is there for you. Some of the candles are real. That's fire. Don't get burned. Okay? Just be careful. But I'd encourage you to just use this as a time to linger. Linger with Jesus. We don't get quiet times very often. Linger with Him. Now, Some of you are going to get done before others. You don't have to take communion and go back to your seat and wait. We're going to leave the room when we're done. 
So as soon as you, you've taken communion, you can be on your way. But um, this night's a little different. We love our gathering space out there. It's a place that we have fun and drink coffee and eat donuts and connect with friends. And tonight we're going to be as antisocial as we get as a church. Because we're going to take the heaviness of tonight and we're going to walk out the door without talking to each other. I ask you to do that in part as a gift to those who choose to linger. Because you may not know it, but uh, the, the noise break between here and there is not much of a noise break. And, and we do have some people that literally like to just sit for a while. Sit for an hour and reflect in the presence of Christ. So, if you're going to talk, talk outside. Now, I know some of you are going to pick up your kids from childcare, and kids tend to make noise. And, you know, please don't tell them, you can't make noise tonight, Pastor said so. They, they love church, and we want them to love church. We get that kids make noise. So, but let's just try to limit that tonight. Be quiet in the presence of God. All right? So, um, in a couple moments, there will be a little more light in the room. And when you're ready, go to one of those places to write, lay your burden down, your prayer down. Take communion, either with the group or at the back. And let what Jesus did for you stick with you. Walk slowly to the cross, my friends. Walk slowly. Don't skip too quickly to Easter. Linger at Good Friday. Don't rush this. Don't look away. Don't miss this. It's life poured out. Liquid redemption for you and for me. Amen.